Hello, my name is Joe Wisby and this is the first in what is hopefully a long series of the Beatles Books podcast. I run the Instagram account at Books Beatles where I archive my 400 plus collection of Beatles books. Over the course of these podcasts I'll be talking to a wide variety of Beatle authors and I'll be trying to find out what their aims, ideas and inspirations were behind their books and why they felt compelled to add their entry into a library which is made up of over a thousand books. For my first episode, I was lucky enough to speak to Kenneth Womack, one of the world's leading Beatles authorities. He is the author of an excellent two-volume biography of George Martin and the fascinating Solid State, released last year to mark the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road. Numerous chapters in the Beatles history are filled with misinformation and hearsay. The final US tour, January 1969, George's Dark Horse 74 jaunt across America, but none more so than John Lennon in 1980. The tales of John during this time vary from lurid to violent, with large slices of misinformation in between. We're blessed now to have, in my view, the definitive book on the subject, and that book is John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. I started by asking Ken what the perception of John Lennon was in the US and across the world at the start of 1980. This period, there was a lot of uh, confusion. Uh, you know, we know so much more now, uh, obviously, than we, we ever did then. There was a sense that, um, that John had disappeared, you know, that there was a lot of concern about him. There were a number of folks in the press, uh, particularly at Rolling Stone, who would kind of wonder aloud in their pages about where John had gone, why he had gone. Um, so that was, that was most of the backdrop. Of course, in 1979, he and Yoko had sent their love letter to the world. Uh, their, their, the, the item that they took out uh, the, the, the page space for in the New York Times. And so they had seemingly answered that question and were trying to provide, I guess, a kind of reassurance uh, about this. Um, you know, it's hard for us to think about it now in the same way, but the Beatles had been so much a part of the fabric of life. And uh, to have one of them be inexplicably absent um, was pretty concerning for people. And so uh, Lennon sightings were treated um, with a lot of fanfare when a photo of him would be taken um, somewhere or another. Um, so, you know, the idea of John Lennon at the beginning of 1980 was one that, that did have a lot of mystery to it. You know, people were aware that he lived in New York, that uh, he had um, uh, succeeded in his immigration fight um, some years earlier. Uh, but you know, John Lennon himself makes comparisons to Howard Hughes a number of times, and he was like kind of a rock and roll Howard Hughes, um, perhaps not as eccentric. Probably not. No, no. Interesting. Yeah. I've forgotten about the 79 uh, letter announcement. That's um, something that, yeah, that, that kind of slipped my mind. Was there a strong reaction to that? Was that something that led on to more kind of interest and intriguing to John going into 1980? Well, it, what it did that was so interesting um, is that it made 
global headlines, right? This um, this love letter uh, that uh, John and Yoko had provided um, in itself made headlines in other papers. I always find that interesting when uh, you know when other media cite um, you know uh, sort of the ur text in this case the New York Times, and it got lots of headlines. I remember even though I was fairly young at the time reading about that and trying to make sense of it. Um, and uh, trying to understand uh, what this distance that he had uh, created was all about. And yet at the same time, why he felt the need, uh, why they felt the need to create this, uh, um, you know, this, as it, as it was called, you know, this, this letter of explanation. Um, and of course, I think in hindsight, and I don't mean this to sound like, you know, they were being they were plotting or anything, but I think, you know, they were testing the waters in some way, <clears throat> you know, to see Absolutely. how they would be received. Um, and uh, I, I think they like what they saw. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Uh, so we find John in 1980 in, of course, the Dakota building in New York. Uh, obviously, for our listeners that aren't New Yorkers or even Americans, what what was it about the Dakota that attracted John and Yoko, do you think, initially? And what was the perception of them once they'd moved in and settled in there? Right. So they, um, uh, they sublet an apartment in uh, 1973 from the actor Robert Ryan. <clears throat> they needed to get out of, uh, you know, move from downtown. Um, they decided they wanted to settle in New York. Um, and uh, the Dakota really, in hindsight, makes a lot of sense, right? It, first of all, it was a very, and is, a very august address. So it satisfied um, their considerations in that regard. You know, John Lennon made no bones about the fact that he liked to live well. Um, <laughs> and, and so that was a, a meaningful choice in that way. It also seemed to provide a kind of respite um you know from the hullabaloo that would always be around him you couldn't just get to him in a, in a building like that so that building made a lot of sense and uh, what what john and yoko seemed to lack at that point um and it, it's worth noting this is what a lot of rock stars of that ilk take for granted today so if you're a bono or a paul mccartney or a bruce springsteen you tend to have warehouses full of stuff and the beauty of what they were able to do at the Dakota during their, their lifetime together there was to have a place to put all of this accumulated stuff. They had storage in the basement. They acquired other apartments. Um, and they were simply doing what a lot of um, uh, folks in their profession who've reached that level uh, do now, which is they have to have a place to put all of their material, guitars, old records, gold records, you know, uh, more stuff than you can ever display. Um, you know, stage sets, uh, you name it, costumery, whatever it happens to be, the Dakota also provided them with a kind of makeshift version of, of what, you know, quite literally um, a lot of folks do today. They, they have very large warehouses of stuff, climate controlled uh, with great security in many cases. But I, I think John was uh, and Yoko were doing a version of that at a certain point as they started to accumulate other apartments. And the perception of him there, he was he well liked amongst the other residents there, or was he a, 
cause intrigue or anger or there was a lot of intrigue about him um you know today if if a john and yoko wanted to buy an apartment like that the color of their money uh would be in front of them uh and their celebrity uh in the in the early 1970s even though the dakota was already uh, a very esteemed address and a, and and one that was associated with with wealth it had had a long history of being the home of bohemians and artists so it still clung to to different parts of it its history in terms of the co-op board um and there were there were some folks who were concerned about a rock star living in the building um who thought that it would upset uh the quietude or perhaps t you know, tarnish the reputation of of the decoderie, as they sometimes call themselves. Um, so those were issues. Um, a, a number of, of folks who lived there, particularly during the late 1970s, liked the fact that John Lennon was there. Rex Reed, uh, the um, uh, movie reviewer. Um, Leonard Bernstein was a huge John Lennon fan, really from, he was an early adopter when the Beatles first came to America. So. Um, for Leonard Bernstein, it was a thrill. Uh, and in fact, he and his family uh, at one of the potlucks, his daughters and himself uh, sang a round of The Moldy Moldy Man, one of John's poems from In His Own Right, uh, and, you know, tickled him to death when they did that. And so there were a lot of folks who were excited by it. Lauren Bacall famously uh, did not like, the actress didn't like all of the, uh, <laughs> the fans who would congregate out front. Um, and sometimes they would just stand there, um, much like they do today, actually. And she would just bark at them, you know, uh, to get out of her way. And I can uh, imagine. With that, yeah, with that stentorian Lauren Bacall voice, you know, they probably knew to get out of the way. <laughs> quite, it just strikes me, actually, just while we're talking, they're quite a, the Dakotas are quite a contrast to John's previous New York address, which was it Bank Street? Is that where yes. he lived when he first came? Which, am I right in saying, was a somewhat more downtrodden part of town as, as opposed to the, to the Dakota? Yeah, and it's, it, you know, one of the reasons I worked on this new book and uh, one of the really chief reasons uh, was to help us time capsule, like, go back to 1980 because uh, it's somewhat difficult to think about New York um, 40 years ago, if you go there right now, because it's so different, um, you know, it is far more moneyed than it was then. Um, it's the crime is very different. It's cleaner for the most part. Um, it's more hospitable, uh, to urban living, uh, people, uh, move about with a lot more freedom than they did then. You know, you're not as afraid about going out after dark, um, uh, you know, so a lot of the, a lot of your ability to move around is easier. Back in those days, people lived in neighborhoods. So if you were downtown, like they were on Bank Street, you probably spent most of your time in the neighborhood, um, just as they did when they moved up to the Upper West Side. They spent most of their time uh, between Central Park West and what was it, Amsterdam Avenue. Um, so that's, that's just how people lived in those days. It was very neighborhood oriented. Um, and yeah, downtown was pretty nasty, you know. Um, the World Trade Center had only just gone up, uh, what, in 73, it officially opens. Um, and that would spearhead a lot of uh, gentrification down there. It would create 
um, the need for grocery stores. Uh, you know, it was it was sort of like a lot of downtowns uh, even today where five o'clock comes and the restaurants aren't open because they're only open for lunch when business is in operation. So there was a, a huge uh, metamorphosis um, that had not occurred yet uh, downtown. So there was simply uh, a better life and a better way of life, I would argue, at that time um, around the park. Now, having said that, again, the city was so different in terms of crime, in terms of... Um, uh, how dirty it was. I mean, look at old photos of the Dakota around that time and compare them with today. Today, it looks beautiful. I mean, it's it's kept a lot better, as are most buildings in the city, because um, in 1980 and beyond, we started to get ordinances about, um, you know, keeping your building clean or suffering very high fines. All of that had been occasioned by, I believe it was at Columbia University, a, a young student was killed. Uh, when some building fell on her or something, you know, along those lines. And so the city was starting to do things to clean up its act. So um, all of this is to say it was a very different place. But uh, being on the Upper West Side made a lot more sense for them. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, quite clear. Um, moving through 1980 now, one of the sentences which echo with Beatles, uh, hardcore Beatles fans, like... George's see around the clubs from Twickenham, I would say, I would say the sentence, fuck a pig, it's Paul. If you, <laughs> if you say that to any well-meaning Beatle fan, they will be taken straight to a particular place and a particular occasion. Obviously, it's John reacting to, to hearing Paul's coming up in the middle of, uh, the, of 1980. Just, just a few questions around this. What impact do you think coming up had as a whole on on John throughout 1980 uh, and how it led to obviously the return to the studio and I was wondering whether or not we know what John's views on McCartney 2 as a record was you know as, as as well as as well as me McCartney 2 is an odd record in the Paul McCartney solo canon there are a few people that have flown through th uh, theories around to suggest that McCartney 2 is a bit of a smoke signal for Paul aimed at John to say, I'm a little bit out there. I'm a little bit crazy. I'm not making a Mull of Kintyre at the moment. I'm making stuff that's a little bit out there. Do you think McCartney 2 was, was aimed a bit at John? It, you know, it's hard to say for sure because um, yeah. what, what we lack is the direct testimony uh, from John or Paul, even though Paul could of course still provide that if he wanted. Um, but uh it was certainly um, a change. He'd had some of those songs around for a while, you know. Um, my understanding is some of them were being considered for Back to the Egg uh, when Paul was working with Chris Thomas, uh, and that Chris Thomas, um, of course, who also worked with the Beatles as a producer on the White Album, Chris kind of pushed Paul back toward the band music and away from this kind of experimental sound. Um, but whatever it was, it definitely caught John's attention. And we owe a lot, uh, you know, to John's assistant, um, Fred Seaman, for, you know, for taking notes that day and capturing that very important um, uh, reaction that John had. Uh, and John, of course, when he would, when they would ride around wherever they were, this happened to be on Long Island, but wherever they were, John would commandeer the radio. 
Uh, and he would often not stay on any song because um, he would get his fill. Um, sometimes he'd be troubled because, you know, he wanted to remake it or reproduce the song in some way, and he'd become sort of a colleague or a critic of, of his fellow musicians. Um, but obviously he stayed on the Paul McCartney song. Later he said, it's driving me crackers. You know, it really got into his head. Um, and perhaps it was just as simple as he heard Paul doing something different, you know, again, going back to the, the 70s, when you think about it, um, there were times when Paul was on the radio more than the Beatles. I mean, it was incredible, um, the momentum that he built up over that decade. So uh, John would undoubtedly have encountered Paul's material all the time, inadvertently, in elevators, in ra you know, record stores, you name it, there it was. And uh, to hear Paul, uh, particularly with that that uh, sped up, uh, very speeded, however you want to put it, version of, of coming up, the non-live version, um, it really attracted his attention. And by the way, John, I would argue, had to have been listening to the album too, because he seemed to have a, a, a kind of in-depth knowledge of that record. He knew the difference between the Glasgow live version and uh, the electronica sounding version you know he seemed to have a real handle on that and so fred probably uh rounded up the album for him um a lot and i believe he did and and you know john was very familiar with obviously paul's music as he came out so it's probably the kind of thing that just wrenched him into a certain kind of excitement because of the fact that it was paul taking a kind of risk absolutely um i think you mentioned some of Paul's other music, just very briefly there. I think it's interesting how Paul releases records like Back to the Egg, London Town even, records that come out during John's hiatus, that almost certainly he would have listened to. He releases Mullock in Tyre, which in, in, in this country, in the UK, is one of, still one of the biggest records of all time. We've no idea what John Dylan thought of those records. Back to the Egg is also, in its own way, a slightly odd record, not successful commercially particularly not su not successful critically at all look back on now with a bit more uh, generous of, of an opinion but i think it would be fascinating to find out what john thought of those records i mean almost certainly he would have listened to them probably so um he seemed to be familiar with back to the egg um i i remember vividly hearing it for the first time it was it was a mid it was released on a midnight and radio stations were allowed to play it and i was pleased that it seemed to be a more edgier guitar-oriented album from Paul, so I was thrilled with that. It sounded more like um, <laughs> it sounded more like girls' school than Mull of Kintyre, right? So it, you know, to flip that B-side over, um, I don't. I I wonder if John had any working familiarity with Mull of Kintyre. If he was listening to American radio, he probably didn't, right? <laughs> because it it simply wasn't played. It was such a bomb. Um, even though it's a lovely song, it just didn't connect. Um, you know, going back to the idea of, of hearing coming up and hearing Paul take a risk, you know, for John, the whole idea of going to the studio and recording new work was a risk. So I, I like to believe that in, at some level it helped buffet him to go out on that limb and begin um, contemplating returning to the studio. Absolutely, absolutely. Moving on again, take us to Bermuda. John, John obviously spends a, a, a chunk of his time in 1980 in Bermuda and your book tells us of how 
much of a creative energy he feels while he's in Bermuda. I think I'm right in saying Beautiful Boy is written slash completed, clean up time, borrowed time. A little bit like the jaunt to India, obviously with Paul and the other Beatles in 1968, he seemed to, when he was away from home, he seemed to have a little bit of a inspirational kick. I think that's fair to say, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by the way that John Lennon composed. Um, you know, it's like a writing process for, you know, people who write novels or books or whatever. And that his particular writing process was intrinsic to him. Um, and in the sense that most of his songs going all the way back to the Beatle days and probably before were fragments. So in other words, he would write one fragment and leave it. And then he would come and write another one. And then maybe he'd hear those two fragments. And he often carried his cassettes around uh, so he could consider these kinds of things in his notebooks. And then he might hear two fragments and he might graft them together. And suddenly he has verse chorus, right? Um, a good example of this is uh, just like starting over, which is three or four different fragments grafted together. Um, and a lot of his songs were existing at this point in fragments. There were pieces of Beautiful Boy before he went to Bermuda. There were lots of pieces floating around of watching the wheels. It had gone through lots of, it had morphed through a number of different versions. There was a kind of an acoustic version. There was a piano version. There were different songs that he sort of sacrificed to get to, to watching the wheels. There was a, my favorite is one that's styled like Revolution One almost a kind of a slow burning rocker and he kind of he kinds of run out he runs out of steam at the end and he starts making jokes about the captain and Tennille but you know what you would do in the late 1970s so um, I feel like when we look at the Bermuda experience his schedule kind of had some air into it you know it's not that he had to be at meetings all day or anything like that but you know, perhaps it was that kind of tropical vacation experience, but he had just enough space to be able to finish his songs. And when you look at his work from that period, uh, a number of times when he had reached the point of fruition, he would write up a little manuscript where he'd write out the lyrics and he would sign it, Fairylands, Bermuda, you know, July 1980. Uh, and it was a very authorial kind of thing to do um, where he would be acknowledging that composer side of himself uh, and, and sort of put a, a certain stamp of approval, which suggests to me he really knew by that point he was, he was going to go to the studio. Um, you know, he was creating artifacts. So he returns from Bermuda, as you say there, with the record, with songs fully formed. You know, he's, he's, he's been out there. He's had his adventures on various different uh, oceans um which obviously uh, certainly was a large part of his year he's gone back to his liverpool dock sailor roots there so he's ready for to record what is to become double fantasy after his bermuda jaunt i, I suppose a few questions around double fantasy if i may so first of all why do you think it was then at that point uh, after Bermuda, after the other events of 1980, that he decided to go into the, stu into the studio and, and start recording what was to become Double Fantasy. And what do you think it was about Jack Douglas and the Hit Factory as a kind of a combined duo that was so attractive to John Antioco? Um, well, you know, that that's a tangled web. It's an interesting, uh, and I don't know that we know all the answers to it. Um, 
Jack was selected uh, because John and Yoko had a very good opinion of him. Uh, Jack uh, uh, could be a very serious person, um, and uh, they knew him to be um, trustworthy, even confidential. Um, and uh, he had demonstrated this before. They had worked with him, of course, before both of them. Mm. So there was a comfort level. Uh, and uh, I, I think a lot of it comes right down to the issue of trust. Um, so they both trusted him with John's demos uh, when I'm sure they were messengered over uh, to New York. And then Jack would famously say, well, they could, you could release them just like they are. Um, I, I've listened to all of them. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> but it reminds me, George Martin said almost the same thing the first time he heard Strawberry Fields, right? You know. Wow. Um, and there's a world of difference between that recording and, you know, John in Spain uh, working out the song. So, or at Kenwood or wherever. But mm. um, uh, Jack made a lot of sense. And I, I, I was in a debate just the other day about, was that album overproduced? I don't think it was at all. I think Jack really uh, provided state-of-the-art recording um, for a John Lennon, Yoko Ono album. And I don't, I don't feel like he over-enhanced him. He put a little bit of you know, echo at times on John's voice because he didn't like it. But Jack was a, a really good decision. Um, Hit Factory, according to Jack, was chosen because it was kind of off the beaten path. Um, it wasn't right, um, you know, in the middle of everything. It was a you know, few blocks off, uh, I guess, of Times Square. It's on 48th Street. Um, was on 48th Street. And uh, that was an interesting decision in itself because Jack was a record plant guy. And there was a deep tension at the time between the record plant's personnel and the personnel at the Hit Factory. Record Plant came first, sort of helped the folks at the Hit Factory get a start, and attention had developed, I suppose, the people at the Record Plant feel like they weren't getting their, you know, their due from the Hit Factory, and so there was some stress. Uh, and Jack, um, apparently in hindsight, felt some stress too about working at the Hit Factory. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't even know what else to say about that. It was just such an interesting choice. Um, he had been I don't, there I, before, hadn't he? In fact, John had, had, had recorded previously at the sorry at the um, uh, the record plant. He he recorded oh, yes. there previously, right? Okay, but the hit right, factory was no. Now, now my uh, I I don't go very far with this uh, in my work because I I still feel like it's an unfinished story but um yoko had had uh, apparently allegedly some issues with some folks there at the record plant too and the hit factory seemed like a good choice to her um apparently i say apparently because i don't think we really know other than there was this kind of i've talked to some of the staff who worked at both places in the time at the time and they said there was a, a, a very a significant amount of tension between two studios who once didn't feel like rivals but now now do and of course probably the 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 stake in the heart is john lennon goes to the hit factory and not the record plant you know so that probably didn't help matters i don't mean to be long-winded about this but i um it's it's it it fascinates me because of course jack would look for opportunities during the mixing and then later they would work at the record plant 
First of all, we like long-winded. Please don't apologise for long-winded. <laughs> We're here for long-winded, Kim. Uh, so, obviously, part of the recording experience, a band is is brought together. Your book, I think, fantastically paints the uh, a picture of the recording sessions. People like, obviously, you know, Tony Levin and um, uh, L Slick, etc. What do you think the experience of the recording the record was like? Not so much for John Yoko and for Jack, but for those that, that featured on the record. We've heard a lot of those tapes. John sounds relatively upbeat, kind of mugging a bit, I suppose, for the recording at times. Um, do you think it was on the whole for those that took part a pleasurable experience? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it was exactly the, and this is where Jack really shines, by the way. So Jack helps put that band together. He gets an arranger, which is uh, what Tony Davilio, which is very important because he knows um, uh, that John Lennon, while he can take painstaking time to graft those songs together as a composer, does not like to spend months upon months upon months in the studio. And so what Jack does so very, very well for him is he is able to uh, get this crack band of professionals, right? These guys can do things in a minimum of takes. He has an arranger. So before John, even before they even know John is their client, they're learning these songs uh, that that Tony Davilio has arranged from the uh, from the demo. So that puts them way ahead. Um, and and then it allows them to be relatively loose in the studio because they don't have to spend four days learning a song. They know the song. They just have to then adapt it uh, to the experience of working with John. And so that does create a lot of conviviality in the studio because, because they know the song. And I'm sure John could tell that they know the songs very well. Then they could razz him. I mean, there are times when they start playing, you know, she's a woman for example uh just to get him you know and he'll and he'll go along with it and he sings it or they'll do some old rock standards and he wanted a band like that that would allow him to be loose and yet um and yet get the work done right in a minimum of takes i think it's not like those old beatles takes where they'd have a hundred takes you know yeah absolutely i think it's also interesting that there was never a thought and i you can confirm this, of going back to some of the familiar faces from the mid-70s, the Jesse Ed Davies uh, and the like, people that recorded a lot with John, primarily on Mind Games and Walls and Bridges. It was always, was it going to be a fresh, new set of guys? Right, and he wanted, um, apparently he wanted intentionally to have folks with whom he hadn't worked before. He didn't want to have a lot of baggage in the room. Um, and, uh, again, Jack deserves so much credit for, for helping to select that band and, uh, and for picking, you know, Earl Slick. Slick, as he told me himself, he was the wild card, you know, they wanted a kind of a one slightly younger new guy, newish guy, uh, because of course, by then he'd already worked for, with Bowie and others. Um, but they wanted someone who, who sort of fit that mold uh, to contrast all these other really great professional, you know, session players my highlight of the entire sessions happens to involve Earl Slick and it's just on the anthology version of I Don't Want to Face It which is my favourite song from the whole set of recording is when John reaches the second just before the solo and then yells Earl Slick at the 
top of his voice and then El Slick rips this solo which I think is far superior to the version that appeared on Milk and Honey but I think for that alone we should be grateful for John Lennon and El Slick working together. And Slick said the exact same thing to me. He uh, not only did he prefer that version but uh, he had not heard it until the anthology came out and um, he said it just stunned him. Um, hearing John uh, yell his voice like that, um, you know, it broke, it broke him. It, he said it was very, it was a tough listen for him, but very powerful. Um, it, John endlessly ribbed him during those sessions because the very first time they see each other, uh, Earl claims he's never met John before. And John said, no, we worked on the Bowie album. Come on. <laughs> and Earl says, no, I, I would remember meeting a Beatle. Thank you very much. And I don't think we did. Um, and John would not let it go as, as he was wont to do. And so you can hear him on some of the outtakes saying, do you remember me now? <laughs> so, so he had a lot of fun sort of picking on, on Slick, the young guy. I can only imagine that the idea of not remembering that you met John Lennon. Still, <laughs> uh, just a quick word on Yoko during the sessions. Obviously, history tells us that her appearance in recording studios with the Beatles was perhaps less than welcomed. By 1980, we're in a whole new world. What was the musicians that we've just discussed and others' reaction to her working with her songs? Her songs are much more of a contemporary sounding than John's. Kiss, 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 you know, and others are fantastically, uh, almost a new wave feeling going on. With sure, them. even every man has a woman who loves him, right? Completely. I mean, that, yeah, no, they were, they were digging those songs. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, uh, you know, from all, again, all in, from all reports, they were enjoying it equally. It was, uh, you know, she had really delivered a lot of material and she does sound more au courant when you listen to those, uh, that record, you know, those, her, and of course the last record, um, that they make, she's just, uh, she's in a really, uh, interesting creative space at that point. Uh, and it, it actually to my mind, when you think about Double Fantasy as a heart play, mm. it creates this really interesting ambiance in this, you know, in the male voice, uh, as you said, staying in his, in a more Beatlesque, um, less contemporary sound. Uh, and, and here is this, it is, it's, it's more new wave. I was listening the other day to uh, um, some talking heads from that point, and you can really hear Yoko's sound in there, um, and not John's. <laughs> No, absolutely. So moving on to talking a bit about Double Fantasy as a record now, let's let's just reflect on it, it, its release it, and the reaction to it. So obviously, first of all, Geffen is the label that they choose to go for. I imagine that a John and Yoko record, you know, a John record, certainly, they could have gone with, dare I say, any record label in the world. Paul, of course, had only recently negotiated a very large increase on his record contract uh, it's certainly in the states what do you think was it about geffen as a company and as a person david geffen that attracted john and yoko well it, it was um you know yoko handled a lot of the business of meeting with record companies and meeting with their execs um but what they liked about geffen um it was by the time they have those conversations they fully decided it's going to be a record designed you know, with the alternating tracks um, and, uh, you know, some 
older, I maybe even chauvinistic execs kind of held their nose at that idea. They really just wanted a John Lennon album. Um, and Geffen uh, played it so well, you know, when they explained how that Yoko's songs would be on the album, he, he said something like, well, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> so he was very uh, open to working with them. But that's what he was trying to do was create an artist label, right? Sort of like the Beatles back in 68 with Apple. In 1980, he was trying to create that kind of label. He already had signed, what, Donna Summer and Elton John. So he was uh, he was really the perfect guy for them. Um, and... Uh, John took him aside uh, famously and said, you know, um, I really want this for Yoko. This was very important for him. Now, Yoko would say the same thing about John to Geffen, too, because um, she knew the level of risk that he was taking in going back out there again, as it were. And, uh, you know, I think I try to do this, and I, I hope I succeed. Yoko deserves a lot more credit than she has gotten during that period. You know, um, and, and it's probably just a holdover from, you know, the end of the Beatles and accusations wrongly in my mind about her role in that. Um, she really um, recognized uh, what a giant risk this was for him. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that as each one of those years in, in retirement went by, it probably made it more, not less difficult for him to go back out there as he's watching people like Paul McCartney score hits right and left. Dylan's even had a hit right in 79. Um, and, you know, all of these sort of, uh, well, we, I don't think we were calling them dinosaurs yet, but all of these future dinosaurs, Led Zeppelin has a big album in 79, right into 80. Pink Floyd is number one most of the year with the wall, you know, so, um, He's very familiar with where, even though he liked to say he didn't subscribe to Billboard anymore or Rolling Stone, he had to have been very familiar with, with the things that were happening at that time. So this was just loaded with risk. And, um, you know, looking back at the testimony now, Geffen seemed to understand uh, what they were looking for. And John was made no bones about it. He said, you know, we've had our shot you and me, Dave, David Geffen, you've been successful. I've been, well, I'm John Lennon. And, uh, but he really did want to see, you know, Yoko get her due because he'd always believed in, in her abilities and her voice. I couldn't agree with you more about Yoko. I, I brought her up for that, for that reason. I think she, at the time, even then, do I say even now, you know, the perception of, of her is somewhat less than heroic in parts, very sadly, but I think she's an absolute, tower of strength throughout this whole period for John and I think the, the music that she makes and that she contributes to Double Fantasy and uh, as you say lastly Milk and Honey I think he's, he's absolutely excellent just, uh, just moving on again to Double Fantasy what was the reaction when it was released we know that some of the reviews were less than excellent in parts I'm also interested to drill down a little bit on the UK versus the US reaction. Uh, I think the most of the, I don't want to say hammerings, but most of the negative reviews that Double Fantasy attracted, am I right in saying they were more UK based rather than, than States? I think so. Some of the reviews hadn't begun to appear uh, when he was murdered. Um, and so, I mean, I've, I've read more than, than once uh, and heard from 
some folks who uh, are, are, are music writers that some of them were sort of held back when he was murdered. You know, there's no point to it. But um, again, we have to go back to 1980. And, and you've alluded to this, and I have too, several times in our, our conversation. It was such a different time. Um, and it was a different time than when John had had uh, taken his hiatus, right, uh, in the mid-70s. It is a very crowded pop field. It is very competitive, as competitive maybe as it has ever been. Uh, you have New Wave um, getting attention. You've got a whole crop of new British artists who are about to uh, invade again, right? Um, and, and MTV is going to help export that like crazy uh, in a short while. You have disco is still very powerful, right? The Bee Gees. You've got uh, you know Pink Floyd uh, every few years coming out with another landmark LP, and the Wall is is that one that year. You've got Bruce Springsteen uh, rolling in with the River, um, which was probably a lot of competition for John, given. Um, that kind of throwback sound. Uh, I remember hearing Hungry Heart and uh, starting over while John was still alive and thinking, wow, this is, uh, I better get with it. This is a new, <laughs> you know, I better go back and listen to my rockabilly and my, my old rock. But, um, you know, so suffice it to say, and, and you still had the Paul McCartney's who had a number one song and a and a top five album that year, you know, still mixing it up. The Who, Pete Townsend had a good year, you know. So the the competition was intense. Um, and I, I do think that record suffered at least for the two weeks John was alive when it was out, um, you know, which is nothing. Uh, it, it suffered a lot of comparisons. Um, it was treated, I think, no doubt about it, more harshly in the UK. Um, but having said all of that, it was selling, and so was the single. Um, and, you know, John got to know uh, in his last evening that it was going to go gold. Uh, so we knew a gold record was coming their way. Um, they really felt strongly that... Uh, that uh, that um, just starting over was going to debut. It was going to come out. It wasn't going to debut, but that it would have reached the top spot very shortly. Um, and this was important to John because, of course, it would validate this idea of a comeback. He wanted it for Yoko, so that's that's a, that's awesome too. Um, but he also had a plan uh, that he'd shared with a number of his relatives, uh, Julia Baird and others, that he wanted to go back to England with a number one song. He wanted to triumphantly return. And so this was very important to them. The most moving scene uh, to me in the whole story is uh, knowing all of the effort they've put into this, how John had slaved over his comp compositions, um, how hard they had worked uh, to craft a really professional album in the fall of, of 1980. And and Yoko is realizing that it's not selling as fast as John is dreaming about this moment he wants to create. They were going to go back to the old ancestral home, you know, up in, up in the north and, and all of this. He even had a, what, a, an idea that he would, what, come in on the QE2 or something and, <laughs> and roll up the Thames or something. But um, Yoko came to him and said, you know, it's just not selling very, it's not selling very quickly. Um, and it, it, the pressure she was under was pretty enormous because she was making a lot of the arrangements for the, the album and everything herself. 
because they'd gotten to the point where they couldn't trust other people with things. And so she is really carrying a huge load here. Um, and she, of course, they're talking about touring now, um, which probably felt even more, like more pressure to her, I would imagine, because, you know, my God, what if they didn't sell out, right? <laughs> You know, uh, Paul McCartney does. What would that mean? I, I can't imagine the pressure she was under, but I love the conversation because she tells this to John. They're in the sitting room there at the Dakota. And he said, it's okay. We still have the family. It's a lovely I, line. I, oh, I love it because it means he's saying, look, that's cool. You know, it, it just said something so great about them. Uh, and I imagine that she cherishes that uh, because it, it really was him doing what a good spouse does to all of you spouses out there. She, he let her off the hook. Absolutely. I think also what's interesting about that line, which is, is illustrated beautifully in your book, is that you can't imagine that reaction were Brian Epstein to whirl into Kenwood in 1965 to say to John... <laughs> that you know ticket to ride has flopped i can't imagine him turning to sin and to julian and to brian and, and saying that sentence i think that that's a, a beautiful outline of john yoko's relationship yeah yeah that's a that's a good way to look at it um i don't know i i of course it's a hard one to, to make that comparison because they could have put out old country and western songs at that point and <laughs> Top the chart. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. Just quickly on <laughs> on uh, Double Fantasy to, to kind of close on, on the record itself. First of all, are you a fan of the... I suppose you have to be a fan of the record to kind of write the book. How do you think it, it sounds now in, in 2020? Do you think it, it, it's a strong record to listen to to someone that's not necessarily a Beatle or a John Lennon fan? I talked to Jack Doug about this the year before last and I said to him I said I, I really love what you did with that record because um, you know it doesn't feel like it's in a time capsule in 1980 no. I can find other records from that period that make me feel like I'm in 1980 and they don't they're not timeless right I mean that's the word and that record uh, is a very fresh sounding well-produced well-recorded record that's why I, you know I got in that little armchair debate recently. I don't think it's overproduced. I think it's produced exactly as it needed to be to capture uh, the sound and the essence of that record. I, I, I agree. I, I had a, a period personally when I was younger. I mean, I'm, I'm the ripe age of 36 now. And when I was about 20, 21, I looked upon Double Fantasy as a little bit of a, oh, it's a cozy, you know, a homely record. It's used in the Richard Dreyfus. Mr. Holland's opus, Beautiful Boys, used in that. And I thought that was a, a somewhat of a misstep for whoever licensed that particular. And then as you get older, I think, and perhaps as things like becoming a father, looking upon a song like Beautiful Boy, suddenly becomes a whole different listen for you. Uh, and I, I think now, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a fantastic point. It doesn't sound like a 1980 record. Some of John's other 70s albums kind of sound like 70s albums but i think absolutely no double fantasy stands up you know completely now and i think just slightly on a tangent i think milk and honey is an equally strong record i think we've we've discussed i don't want to face it i think you know i'm stepping out is is fantastic borrowed time nobody told me you know equally strong record there was there was definitely a fantastic full-length record from john that could have emerged from these sessions Absolutely. And, um, you know, 
they 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 obviously were working on some kind of notion when they make when they were imagining the follow-up record to Double Fantasy because they, it's a different collection of songs. Mm. You know, it almost has its own flavor and its own style. So um, you can see why they held them back. I just remember as a kid when I, got, I was 14 and I, I remember getting it and thinking, wow, every cut, you know, I, I had no issue with Yoko's material. I liked it. I probably liked Kiss, Kiss, Kiss far too much. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, you know, it's what you want to hear when you're 14. But Absolutely. Um, what I, yeah, what I, what I, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, this guy just served up like, what is it, a perfect, um, you know, six or seven songs. I can't yeah. believe I can't come up with the number right now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I know what you mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just thought, I mean, even the lesser tracks like uh, um, uh, O Yoko and, um, or it's Dear Yoko. O Yoko's on Imagine, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh. Dear Yoko and, and Clean Up Time, I thought those are damn good, but, you know, I'm, I'm losing you. Watching the wheels, woman, and starting over are good on any record, anywhere. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So, pulling very uh, slightly now toward the end of our conversation, we're going to talk about December the eighth, but we're going to talk about two things that happened that day or around that time. And and rather than anything else, so John goes to an Annie Leibovitz photo session, uh, and a set of pictures is produced including a picture which I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will be aware of, of John's naked body clinging to a fully clothed Yoko. And and then at the same time, he, uh, rather later that day, he records uh, his final, what was to become, unbeknownst to anyone, his final radio interview with Dave Shaolin. I was wondering what you thought those two uh, events set, can tell us about John in, in 1980? I, what I want to know, and, and never have quite gotten the answer, they, they had a lot of takeout, I think, is the answer, but I also want to know when they ate, because um, <laughs> they, the schedule when they're, especially in the fall of 80, is just wall to wall. You know, I mean, he wakes up, they go to Cafe La Fortuna, he goes down and he gets, a, he gets his hair slightly trimmed because he knows they've got the photo session. And then it's one thing after another, right? At home, you've got Annie Leibovitz, who lives in the building, comes to do the photo session. Then you've got, uh, you've got Dave Sholin, who rolls in. And, you know, John doesn't do interviews as half measures. They go for, you know, hours. I mean, he, Andy Peebles was in over the weekend and they'd done like three hours with him on tape. And then they went to Mr. Chow's and they continued. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, they were just eating it up and, um, you know, and, and they had gotten the song to where they wanted. He had recorded what his guitar solo the week before, um, you know, what an amazing tune walking on thin ice is too. You know, you can't say that enough. It's a, uh, it's a great headphone song. Uh, lots of moments of great creativity. Yoko's poem, uh, in it, um, just good, good stuff. Uh, John with the help of Jack Douglas, uh, on that guitar solo with Jack working the whammy bar, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just, uh, it's such a, it's a magical tune, um, with lots of, um, just lots of wonderful energy. You know, 
it, it's, it's, it's a fool's errand to talk about what ifs, but the one what if I like to think about is if that record had been able to be released mm. and tested on its own strength instead of the last recording of John and Yoko. You know, um, I would have liked to have known that. It, it becomes a number one dance hit, but I think it could have been just a real true pop hit um, in, in every I sense agree. of the word. Because it was just such a wonderful, fun, spooky track. Uh, just good stuff. Excellent. I, I couldn't agree more. Sholin, um, yeah. Dave Sholin is uh, fortunately still with us, and he's a, one of the great rock uh, interviewers. Uh, and, and his questions that day were just so wonderful. He captured uh, so many um, just e excellent uh, reminiscences from John, you yeah. know, when we needed him the most, including, uh, as Dave told me himself, the car ride to the record plant. Uh, when John is singing songs for them and, uh, and Dave tries to, I, I, don't, I don't want to say put one over, but he, you know, the, the issue at the time, if you thought about the Beatles was our John and Paul getting along. Mm -hmm. And so he starts to ask about, you know, Paul and John, and this must be a great boon to Paul. John said, stop you right there. I would do anything for Paul and I know anything he would, he would do anything for me. We're like brothers, yeah. you know, just yeah. no bones about it. I couldn't no more. We're also blessed, of course, to have the, is it Robert Hilburn? Is that the interview that's, that, that Fred films while they're recording? There's an interview that he gives when he, is that the one when, and he's talking about John and there's some kind of um, disturbance in the background. They're mixing something. Is it from M M Empire Strikes Back to try and feature him on the records? And, and, and he's talking about Paul. And of course he says, Paul, my dear one. I mean, what, what a boon to Paul that must be as well. Yeah, you know, so much is made about their issues. Those guys loved each other, and they made no bones about it. Um, you know, there was that, that quiz, that association quiz that you can see when they, they ask questions, and he was supposed to give a word. What was his yeah. word for Paul McCartney? You know. Extraordinary. That's right, extraordinary. I mean, that's perfect if you think about it. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a pop music virtuoso, and John Lennon's the pop music visionary. So they were, they were a marriage made in heaven, and and those are wonderful moments. You know, the, I think those were the sound effects they were recording for. Um, uh, was it the end of uh, "I'm Losing You," or was it the end of? Uh, I think it was the end of "I'm Losing yeah, You," I or think the you're end. Right. Of, uh, yeah, they, and they were they wanted some sounds like. Uh, like Star Wars weaponry. Exactly you like know, that. For Sean. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's annoying because he's having this conversation with this guy and we can only hear, you know, a third of it or two thirds of it. And he's talking about Magical Mystery Tour. He's talking about, obviously, Paul. He's talking about... Because, of course, he says to him, um, just briefly referring back to what we, what we were saying earlier on, he says, do you still listen to Paul? And he says, I dropped out when he released the one with the rose in his mouth. Uh, <laughs> I don't buy for a second and I'm sure you don't either no no he was familiar and of course uh, was considering uh, going to New Orleans uh, for With Venus and Mars you know so um, that would have been interesting I think um, you know <laughs> no offense to the folks who were deep fans of that record but um, I think it would have been really benefited from some John Lennon on it <laughs> I, I think most of Paul's records probably would have done it I think most of John's as well um, so just just join to a close now. I think uh, it's a wonderful book, Ken. And, and like I said, there's so many books that have been out previously about either solely about this time or that are covered in 
various different biographies of John and 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 the Beatles. And I think now we've got an absolutely definitive version. Just just to close, what do you think you learn the most about John from that you got from writing this book? Well, I wanted uh, to humanize him because that is the the thing that's most important to us and why we all connect and why people are right this minute connecting with the Beatles for the first time, maybe this second. Uh, and that is because of these deeply human qualities. And I really feel, I felt like many of the books uh, that have tried to bring this period to life have missed that humanity or they've skipped the music, right? And the music and the development of it uh, it, in John Lennon's own words, the music will always be the thing that will matter the most. You know, the rest is just salaciousness. And I, I, I wanted a book in the world that did that and also one that was not a true crime story. You know, um, as far as John Lennon, the human being, was concerned, and I tried to always stay in places where he was, the lights go out. Um, you know, he, we know far more about what happens uh, to him than he ever w would. So um, I, I, I think we've had enough of true crime stories uh, about this too, because it's really um, what, what, what makes that story wonderful. And I think we all want it, whether we're 36 like you or 54 like me. And that is, you know, to have, to be able to, to do something and still be at the top of our game, right? To be able to come back and and, and uh, it's like the Tempest, right, with Shakespeare, you know, to, to be able to have your magical powers. And John Lennon went in uh, with a crack group of musicians and proved that he had it in spades. And that is, that's a story that's worth telling. You know, to be able to put that together and pull it off, you know, is, uh, that's a mighty impressive feat. Absolutely. It's a story worth telling and a story that you've told uh, so well. So, Ken, thank you so much for your time. 